Welcome to Broad Gauge Gossips, the podcast where you can learn about the faculty of the Department of Military History in the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. We are here today with Assistant Professor Dirk Ringenberg. The Department of Military History. Welcome. Thank you. So let's start by uh, having you tell us a little bit about your background. I uh, graduated high school in 1987. I joined the Army right away. I spent uh, nine and a half years as an enlisted soldier, and then I went to officer candidate school. Uh, during that time, I was able to uh, acquire enough credits uh, to go to officer candidate school, and then I had to do what was called degree completion which I finished my bachelor in uh, uh, history at Columbus State University in 1999. Um, then I continued to serve my uh, uh, time as an officer. I was an infantry officer, went overseas many times. I attended the Command and General Staff College in 2008. Uh, at that time, I completed my master's degree. I got a master's of military arts and science. Um, after Retiring from the Army, I came back to CGSC and taught as a uh, tactics instructor for a couple years. And then uh, I pursued my doctorate at Iowa State University uh, starting in uh, 2015. And uh, I'm currently ABD and I'm working on my dissertation right now. Okay, um, and, and give us a little bit of detail on your uh, service experience, your time. I know you were involved in the Global War on Terror and, and won some decorations there. So if you could give us a brief kind of rundown of that. Certainly. I had the uh, uh, good fortune of being assigned to some very good organizations with some uh, you know, very uh, professional and good soldiers. I did three tours, uh, two in Iraq, one in Afghanistan, and while I was a company commander in the 173rd Airborne Brigade in Afghanistan in 2005. I was involved in uh, heavy fighting in southern Afghanistan and I was awarded the uh, Silver Star uh, for a battle on 21 June 2005 and the Bronze Star for Valor in a battle on 3 May 2005. Okay, uh, tell us a little bit about your research interests and what, what you work on in, in your history studies. Uh, I, I am actually a history of technology, subset military technology. Iowa State University is the school of science and technology, and so uh, that kind of fit right into what I wanted to research. Uh, I commanded a long-range surveillance detachment that was very reliant on radio, so my interest kind of blossomed to where uh, I am now currently researching uh, the implementation of wireless communications into the United States Army. 1898 to 1918 is my time frame. Uh, okay, so would you describe yourself then as a kind of generally a World War I historian? Uh, yes, uh, you know, wireless was certainly in its infancy prior to World War I and throughout World War I the uh, the need for a communications uh, means became very apparent uh, on the broadening mechanized battlefield, and that's that's really where my uh, uh, the you know the proof of principle 
in wireless came, that three-dimensional battlefield um, and the need for uh, the ability to communicate with large uh, organizations of soldiers. Okay, and I, I know you've also spent some time working for the distance education department here at CGSC. So could you tell us a little bit about that and how it relates to kind of the, the CGSC in the classroom that most people think of when they think of this place? Certainly. Uh, I spent two and a half years prior to coming to DMH in the Department of Distance Education, which really has the preponderance of the field grade officers attending. Uh, they're all remote. They are using asynchronous learning. Uh, Common Core, which is the area that I, uh, I, I created computer-based instruction and then really communicated with students fairly sparingly because of the amount of students. There's approximately 5,000 students at any one time going through uh, Common Core distance education. And so that ability to convey this uh, at times complex information and have the students come up with the same uh, learning objectives that we do here in the resident course is challenging and uh, um, I really got a lot of experience with revising lesson plans for the modality of distance learning. Okay, very good. You, we have many faculty members who have military experience. Um, yours is among the most recent. So how do you think that helps inform your teaching? Well, certainly the uh, events that we've witnessed over the last couple months in, the, uh, in Afghanistan and in uh, ongoing in Iraq and Syria really uh, land close to home for me uh, personally and with individuals I know who are still serving there. So as we go through some of these, you know, complex lessons where the, the field grade officers are, are possibly attending their only, you know, primary military education, uh, taking in that strategic aspect, seeing how decisions play out in real time, and how uh, understanding the past and decisions that individuals made had great consequences, um, you know, is really something that I like to bring forth in the classroom and, and have the students grasp it. Um, and I try to add a little bit of personal experience, but not too much. Okay, and, and for the listeners, uh, we are recording this in late 2021 uh, for the recent events that Professor Ringenberg is referencing. Um, you, you are a historian of technology, as you describe yourself. Uh, so how does that influence your teaching? Well, it's, it's a lot of the innovation that goes along with the technology. You know, the, we tend to try to give agency to technology at times, but it's really, you know, technology for what? Um, is it a benefit? Is it a distraction? And that answer changes over time with different circumstances. Uh, there's a common... Uh, idea that Americans love technology. Well, everybody loves technology that helps them, um, but it's when we try to make that technology solve problems that it's not created for uh, that uh, we tend to get into problems. And, and those are the types of uh, areas I like to look into. Um, my, my chair at Iowa State University, Dr. Tim Walters, um, he's really um, paved that uh, understanding and, and uh, and certainly steeped it in me uh, through his own writings in the field. 
Okay, um, and let's dive a little bit deeper into your, your research. Uh, in this period in the early 20th century, technology is changing a lot, right? It's changing rapidly. Um, what, what kind of challenges does that present a military organization in adapting technology to practice? Well, we could, that's really the, the crux of the entire issue. Uh, the, the Army had some very intelligent individuals, General George Squire, who at the time was a young field grade officer when he was uh, trying to convince um, politicians in Congress to pay for a unproven technology uh, without a clear purpose. Uh, we can see ourselves certainly in this type of situation now where um, n not only does the uh, technology need to solve or be used for a, a specific purpose within the military, but you have to convince individuals who don't understand the technology to begin with to pay for it. And it most of the time boils down to money and the ability to convey that understanding. Um, just reading some primary source documents, uh, individuals in Congress in 1890s, well, in early 1900, 1901, 1902, just dumbstruck at the idea of talking through the air. Uh, telegraph had been around for many years, but being able to then take that medium and talk without anything connecting one side to the other was revolutionary. And, and that process is what I'm really interested in. Right, right. Yeah, and, and you, you raise a good point. When, when you think about decision makers, whether those are civilian, congressional, uh, military decision makers, they tend to be older people. And, and they tend to be less adaptive to new technologies and new advances than maybe um, a young signal officer might be. So how do the people who know the technology convince the decision makers to adopt it, especially when it's unproven, like you said? Uh, well, it's, a lot of it's in just language, using simple, straightforward language. And then there is a proof of some sort that happens uh, at a later date. Um, there were exercises that were conducted um, in New York with ship to shore and, and bringing those uh, policymakers who had the purse strings to witness these events um, really was what gave a lot of payoff. And then gaining, you know, it's, it's that Cotter change model, right? Being able to gather a coalition, you know, get in a common vision, and, and, and show the benefit uh, that's worth the cost. But, but really, that's, uh, uh, that's the uh, struggle that we see over and over and over again, is that uh, that's easier said than done. Right, right, and you have that development cycle problem too, where sometimes you, you do make the decision and you appropriate the funding and it's already obsolete. That's right, uh, generation uh, of technology, especially early on, expensive, big, um, the understanding that it takes many generations to get to a point where it is a viable uh, either tactical or operational benefit, um, that's, that's what the selling really has to account for is that, that different generations of equipment are going to be needed to get to where uh, we need uh, to be essentially. And we see that Certainly in uh, industry currently, that's fairly well understood. Uh, and the dollar figures are, you know, astronomical, but uh, 
you know, those successive generations of products are going to lead us uh, to that one key piece that's going to be needed at a vital time. Right, right, right. Uh, you, you, you'd also mentioned um, your your experience in your military service. Uh, as I said earlier, we have many faculty members who have uh, experience, m- most of them as officers, but you also have experience in the enlisted ranks. So how do you think that helps inform both your research and your teaching? Well, I was, uh, when I was uh, enlisted in the uh, 82nd Airborne Division and in the uh, Ranger Regiment, certainly with communications and being able to uh, stay connected but be very decentralized. I mean, that's a very core tenant in the U.S. Army. Um, but as a, as a company commander, when I commanded a, uh, the Long Range Surveillance Detachment, we were very decentralized. But the technology that I had at my fingertips, um, I distinctly remember in 2005 using my uh, um, embitter radio, or it may have been my TACSAT, and linking to a satellite and talking to a drone pilot who was in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I was uh, in northern Kandahar, uh, Afghanistan, and talking to him like he was sitting right next to me, uh, really was that awakening moment, uh, seeing how this technology had evolved to that point um, was, for me, was, you know, kind of a watershed moment. And that's where I think I could trace back my initial interest because people often ask, how'd you get interested as a former light infantryman and all that in researching early radio development? And I say, uh, well, there was this this aha moment I had, and I knew I wanted to find out how this all started. And um, um, yeah, that's that's where it all began. Yeah, and I think that's a good lesson for, for aspiring historians out there, whether they want to be professionals or just kind of uh, hobby historians. I think we all have had a moment like that, where we wondered why something existed the way it did. Yeah, And how we, got, how we got where we are, that's a, that's a, that's a really good story. Uh, I know as well that you, like uh, like many in our department, are a big um, weapon buff. Uh, so how does that help inform your uh, both your research and your teaching? Well, I think it's that, that technology aspect. Um, understanding the tools of the trade, and for us, as uh, uh, a, mili- a part of the U.S. Army, we, we are bound to... Uh, the technology of weapons and radios and the uh, innovative ideas that go along with their employment. Um, And as a former young enlisted soldier, especially having served in the Ranger Regiment, um, those became an additional appendage of my body. And it's just something that, you know, I don't find myself shooting and doing things as much as I used to as a young man, but uh, it's never far from my mind and it's become something that I'm well versed in. Um, And seeing the evolution of those systems firsthand, uh, I can bring a different perspective, you know, as a a young uh, uh, Army sniper in the 82nd Airborne Division, I, I saw the new weapon systems that were brought on board in the early 90s, uh, and have seen them uh, transformed throughout the global war on terror and use in real time. 
And uh, that's something, especially like I said, with that doctrinal and innovational aspect um, that I, I remain close to. And, and I know that you are a big proponent of weapons safety. Um, so, so how do militaries balance, on the one hand, new technologies, unproven, possibly unsafe, with the safety of the people involved? Uh, what, what I've seen is there, there is a pretty robust force modernization process that, that systems go through. Um, in the 90s, when I, uh, you would always see some new weapon systems uh, introduced into some of the uh, JSOC units. They had the time and money and funding to really put them through their paces before those weapon systems uh, then were uh, uh, spread throughout the Army. So we have a pretty good one, for instance, was the M240 uh, machine gun. Um, I was on a I was a weapon squad leader at the time, and we received the first sets of those uh, in Second Ranger Battalion, and we put them through their paces, made modifications, recommendations to the Army, which the Army ultimately uh, accepted. And then that system was then put into uh, the platoons and throughout the Army uh, after it had been um, really, uh, well, like I said, put through its paces uh, and, and, and adapted to our doctrine and what we needed it to accomplish. So I've seen a couple of examples of that. And, and I think, you know, during the global war on terrorism, obviously there was many opportunities for different technologies to be implemented. And usually those came along with, and the one that comes to mind that we see most readily is drone technology. Um, I mean, that, that came all the way from this little handheld uh, plane type thing called a Raven all the way up to the things that we have nowadays. And so there's that generational aspect with technology. Right. But the Army is pretty good at um, identifying and uh, funding and then implementing needs from the field. Um, so to speak. Do you see the same emphasis in the early 20th century about balancing safety and technology? There, uh, the beginnings of it, yes. Um, certainly my research into radio and, and the signal corps at the time was essentially the jack of all trades. The first Army airplanes were part of the signal corps, uh, you know, the Wright Flyer. And, and they were learning the limits of safety, and there were accidents and there were fatalities, but that all led to uh, a greater emphasis on, um, you know, creating systems that, when this technology is used, puts the safety of the operators and stuff first and foremost. And we do see this really. Uh, uh, you know, become more refined once we get to the First World War. Although there's always, you know, there's always hiccups. Right. There's always ideas of, uh, you know, how do we do it better? You know, the first wireless radios that they attempted to put on airplanes, you know, had spark gaps and they caught things on fire. And so uh, those, that constant evolving measure, countermeasure to gain a result, um, 
was played out. And, you know, once the war came, things tended to jump into uh, high speed. Right, right, as they tend to, yeah. Fascinating conversation. Uh, thank you for being with us, Professor Ringenberg. Oh, it's my pleasure. Please be sure to check out our other podcast, A Confused Heap of Facts, where we sit down with military historians from the Department of Military History and special guests to talk about topics in military history.